In the early 20th century, there was the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Now, that controversy spanned over several decades in the early part of the 20th century and is a little more nuanced, a little more complicated than this sermon has time for, let alone an introduction to a sermon. But I just want to, at the rise of that controversy, though, start it during a heated debate in the New York Presbytery in 1909. And it was a debate about whether to ordain three men, three men who refused to assent to the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus. And so there was a great debate. Uh, they didn't deny the doctrine, but they didn't affirm the doctrine as well. And so after the debate in the Presbytery, they voted to uh, affirm and to ordain these three men. But the minority in that debate filed a complaint to the uh, GA, as Presbyterians do, we file a complaint up. And uh, what next year, in some uh, political and ecclesiastical maneuvering, the GA eventually dismissed the complaint, allowed the ordination of the three men, but they passed the doctoral deliverance of 1910, which declared five doctrines which were necessary and essential to the Christian faith. So therefore, anyone else who was going to be ordained from now on had to assert to these five doctrines that were essential to the Christian faith. And the first of those doctrines was the inspiration and the inerrancy of the word of God. And then it was the virgin birth. You have to affirm that Christ was born from a virgin. And then there was the belief that Christ's death was for the atonement of sin. And for the fourth one, that Jesus actually physically resurrected. There was a bodily resurrection. And the last one was that the historical reality of Christ's miracles that these were true accounts of things that actually happened. So those were five doctrines that people had to adhere to. Now those five doctrines later became known as the five fundamentals. And those people that adhered to those five fundamentals became known as fundamentalists. And there you have where you begin the, the idea of the fundamentalist and the modernist debate. Now it gets a little more nuanced as it goes on. Uh, soon thereafter, premillennial and other kind of doctrines get associated with premillennialists, I mean, with fundamentalists, and it goes on, it gets a little more and more complicated. And the reality is, all fundamentalists were inherently modernists as well. And the controversy was a little crazy. But uh, here's the other thing as, as Presbyterians, or as a Presbyterian pastor, I have to adhere. And all Presbyterians have to adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have to, to know it, we have to study it, we have to be examined upon it, and we ha if there's anything in it that we take exception to, we have to note it, write it out, and explain why we take exception to it, which is what these men did. And then it's up to the Presbytery to decide, is that okay? Is that okay? Out of these five fundamentals, these are all included in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They're just inherently in there anyway. And in our current denomination, we are uh, descendants of the fundamentalists. And so we wouldn't call ourselves fundamentals, but we have, we have this thing, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then we have this thing called the essentials of faith. And so these are seven doctrines. Now it's a little more than seven, but there's seven statements with lots of doctrine in there. And most of those doctrines are say who, who God is, who Jesus is, what is his work, and the authority of Scripture. And all five of these fundamentals would be in there as well. And we have this at his church too. We have an essentials of faith, which is almost word for word the same as the EPC. 
All that is to say is that there are foundational truths to Christianity. There are important foundational truths to the universe. We know this. In order for the universe to exist, there has to be some foundational truths. And it's not to negate the truthfulness or the importance of the fundamentals in the early 20th century. Those are important doctrines. But the Gospel of John, in this passage, teases out what I think are five more important doctrines than these fundamentals. And that's not to dismiss, to hear me very clearly, I'm not dismissing these fundamentals. I'm hearing to all of them, right? If you want to know, the only part of the Westminster Confession of Faith that I took an exception to was the issue of Sabbath, and it's just a little bit how legalistic they talk about the Sabbath in that terms. That's the only thing you just want to know. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's what I agree to. That's what I hear too. But it's not that these five fundamentals are important, but I think the Gospel of John lays out in this passage five foundational truths which are even more important to the Gospel, which are even more important for you and I to know. And John 3.33 says this, whoever receives his testimony, Christ's testimony, sets his seal to this. Whoever receives these truth claims of Jesus, whoever believes, whoever trusts Jesus, sets his seal, holds fast, right? There's a seal, like an old-fashioned seal on, a, on an envelope or a, some kind of letter to your sending and say, this is, this is from me. I hold this as true. I guarantee this truthfulness. I, I confirm this. This is what set your seal upon these things is. And these five sealed truth statements, these five foundational truths that those who receive, that those who trust Jesus adhere to. And the first one is this. God is true. God is true. I mean, you could say God exists, right? There is a God. Now, we don't need, God doesn't need us to affirm that he exists, Right, But it's in order to have a relationship with him, you ought to affirm that he exists, that he is real. I mean, try to have a relationship with your spouse and believe that they don't exist. I mean, some of us treat our spouse like they don't exist, but that's not a great relationship. God is true. John 33, 33. Right, for the first one is God is true. The second one, the Father sent Jesus. God is true. The Father, or God sent Jesus. The Father loves the Son. The Father gives all things to Jesus. And then whoever trusts Jesus has eternal life. Those are five foundational things that are even before the fundamentals, I would say. And the Gospel of John points them out. Then the first foundational truth is this. God is true. John 3 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. In terms of his existence, but also it can be translated, God is truthful. What God speaks is truthful because God is the truth. Truth is a, not a concept outside of God, just like love is not a concept outside of God. Truth is a concept that God describes about himself. There are, there are lies, there are things that people speak that aren't true, but what God says, this is what truth is. What I speak happens. What I speak will come to be. And we know this because he is the only one that has the power. You and I do not have this power. 
This is a very important doctrine. You and I do not have this power to speak something into existence. It's not possible. You do not have the power to use God's word to speak something into existence. You don't have that power. God does. God has a thought it happens. That's his power. That's his creativity. That's out of his love. And so what God, this truth concept is that God, what he says is what happens. What he says is true. It's, 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 it's part of, God. truth is a part of God's holiness. Holiness is a concept of how different than he is to everything else, right? How different than God is everything else is that everything God says is true. You and I, everything we say is not necessarily true. You know that existence in your life, right? And so there's a, there's a holiness, there's a set-apartness to us from God and everyone else as well. There's a, there's a real and the shadowness of it. And then John 14, 6, right? We know that Jesus says this, I and the way, the truth, and the life. And so he personifies this. The embodiment of truth is God, the author of truth, the one who decides what truth is. And truth is not just a list of propositional statements, a list of facts, although it is. It is those things. That is a subset of what truth is. Those five fundamentals, these five foundations are truth statements. But you know, that God is real, that God exists, God is true. There is a God. Those are true statements, propositional. But truth is something more than that, than a list of these are facts. It's also what we do. This is really foundational to how we live and how we understand what love is as well, too. Truth is something we do, or in terms of God's holiness, is something that he does. Everything that God does is true or really real in compared to what we do, which are shadow things. Point this out in scripture, 1 John 3 through 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil is described as the father of lies. So this idea is that whoever makes a practice of sinning is a, a liar. From the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then Psalm 86, 11, this even hits it clear. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So I want you to think about as, as proper loving acts, as actually truthful actions. Because that's how God acts. And God is truth. In, in, compared to the opposite, which are lies, is the way a liar acts, or the way the devil acts, or the way our deceit acts, our sin acts. God is true, he exists, he is the truth, and he speaks truth, and he acts truthfully. Even further, Hebrews 6, 13 through 9, explains this even further. For when God made a promise says he'll do something, to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, right? So this is the concept, right, when we make pinky swears or we make, no, I'm really serious, I promise this is true, right? And so God, like, I can't, I don't make a pinky swear, I'm not gonna swear on my mother's grave, right? He's like, I've got nothing higher to swear. And there was more of a culture back that time to have levels of truthfulness. 
right? I swear upon uh, my parents, I swear upon uh, Jerusalem, I swear upon the heavens, I swear upon God, right? And so how, how much you were willing to elevate it was how serious you were. But God's like, well, there's nothing higher than me. Who do I swear by? Saying, says, surely I will bless you and multiply you to Abraham. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Just think about it. We have to swear upon something greater than ourselves because in and of ourselves, we're not truthful enough. Our acts aren't truthful, our speeches are because we are only a reflection, an image of the truth and not the truth itself. And it goes on further. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, a oath, there's a vow and there's an oath, a promise and an oath is final for confirmation. So when God, so when we make a promise, usually there's like you have to swear upon something and then usually to confirm it like there's some collateral or la- leverage to it or oath to it. And God says, well, there's an oath, there's a final for confirmation. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, you and I, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise, his vow, and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What's the hope that's set before us? I mean, it's Christ, but it's surely just his promise. It's just his word. It's his character. The anchor for your soul is that God is true. Period. And what he says is what will happen. What he promises will happen. Now, you and I know those promises usually don't come in a time frame in which we are pleased with or we want. But what he comes says is what happened. And that is the anchor of your soul. God is is true. We find security, comfort in his words, his promises, and therefore his actions, all which are true. Right? So the, the first foundational truth that God, uh, John is saying that God is true, the second foundational truth is that the Father or God sent Jesus. The Father sent his word, which is true. John three thirty four. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father sent Jesus his word. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the very first sermon in this series, right, we learned that this word here is a really important word. It's not just, this, we have an understanding of word as, okay, we know what a word is. But this word is this logos concept, which has two kinds of uh, emphasis behind it. One is logos is the speech of God. Jesus is the speech of God. But not so, it's a philosophical term back in that ancient Easter time. It means the purpose of the universe. So logos was the purpose. And so they debated, they debated what the logos was. And here John clearly states, hey, the purpose of the universe is Jesus. He's the foundation of it all. The one who is true. 
the one who is truthful. His word is true. Jesus is truth. In the midst of the Jesus, therefore, and Jesus is God, right? You see, this, there's a circular axiom here, right? But here's the thing, right? Like, I can't, you can't necessarily prove all this, but the, and it's circular, all these arguments are made in circular things. Here, here's the thing you need to know about all logic in this created universe. It's all circular. It's all circular. It all circles upon itself because we are people in a, a temporal, finite perspective, and we cannot understand all things. It's just how knowledge is created in us. But God is not. More specifically, the holiness of Jesus, the difference that sets him apart, what is it? What is the difference that sets him apart? John 3, 31, 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to earth and speaks in his earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard, yet no one receives his testimony. What John is saying, he's saying, Jesus is not like you and I. He's from above. You and I are from the earth. I, I can speak with some authority and some power, right? And so can you. But I have limited authority and power and limited knowledge. But the one who's from above, who hears from above, who understands all things, is able to have more authority and speak more authority because he hears more authority, because he is more authority, because he's, from, he's above all things. This is what John is saying. We are temporal beings. He is set apart. He is God. These five foundational fruits. And then right, it says, this, the Father gives the Spirit without measure to the Son. You and I get the Spirit. It's not without measure. There is a measure of the Spirit that we are given. He has the Spirit without measure. Why? Because the Father eternally begets the Son. Now, I just want you to understand that. Like, we're initially going to think in a, in a timeline when I say eternally begets. Oh, the Son comes from the Father, but there was never a beginning point when that happened. There's not a, a timeline that says, this is when the Son was begotten from the Father. It's eternal. This is eternal, which means there's never an end to this. And then from the Father and the Son, Eternally begotten is the Spirit. The three are one. The Father and Son share the same Spirit. Now, there were prophets before Jesus. There were, there were messengers of God before Jesus. And they were given the Spirit to speak at a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain way. And it's why we have these scriptures. They were given a message. That's, that's the Lord. But Jesus is not a prophet in a certain time in a certain place. He is from above. And he hears it all the time because he's one with the Father. There's one God. John 8, 27-21. They, they did not understand that he was been speaking to them ab about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father 
taught me. And he who sent me is with me. Who sent him? The Father sent him. Where did he send him? From heaven to earth. He has, left, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's never separated from the Father. He always does what he's pleasing because they have the same spirit. They are one. Right? That first foundational truth, God is true. The second foundational truth, the Father sent the Son to us. And we can talk about more why he sent the Son to us. And the third foundational truth, the Father loves the Son. Now this actually, I think, is the foundationalist of foundational truths. It's even more foundational that God than God is true, is that the Father loves the Son. I think they're all intertwined. In John 3.35, it says, the Father loves the Son. The eternal Father eternally loves the Son. Always. Never shall cease. Not a beginning point, not an ending point. Always loves the Son. John 17.24 says, you... Jesus says, you love me before the foundation of the world. There he said it. Before anything was created, the Father loved the Son. Everything in the universe, our Christian worldview, it is very important, a biblical worldview, the real worldview starts with this foundational truth. The Father loves the Son. And we got it in John 3.16 just earlier, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I'll get to more of that. That's not the father loving the son. That's the father loving the world. I'll get to that in a moment. God's love is so foundational, so powerful that his love is creative. It overflows. Out of his love, love creates something. I mean, we talk about the solution in the world. Love changes people. Period. You cannot change people in other way, but you can love them, and that love is transformative. Now, God's love, which is real love, which is true love, is even more transformative. It is creative in his action, and he, he gives, he creates because he loves. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But John 5, 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show them, so that you may marvel. Now, we, some of you know that there, in the Bible there's different words for love, right? There's, there's these vast kind of definitions of love, and uh, we all get that in one English word. We have this love of brotherly love, phileo, right? That uh, friendship, or actually, it's actually intimate or affectionate love as well, too. It has that... In- Implication that we have the, the city of Philadelphia, which is a city of brotherly love, right? And then we have this term agapo, agape or agapo, which is this covenantal promise love. And sometimes we Christians make a big deal of when these are used or not. Here's what I want you to understand. That love that was in John 5.20 for the father loves the son is actually phileo. So uh, Phileo love is not less than agapo love. It's this, this, it's this different expression of it. And elsewhere, elsewhere in John 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's not phileo, that's agape love. 
which is a covenantal love. And it's the kind of love I talk about at a wedding day because it's a love which makes promises, true statements, and then fulfill those statements. That's a kind of love. It's not necessarily affectionate or romantic, but they're still equal and important. The point is that all this love encompasses in this relationship. God is true. The Father sent the Son, and God the Father loves the Son. Foundational. And the fourth one, the Father has given all things under Jesus' authority and power. He's given all things into his hand. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son, right? The, loves the Son, and therefore he gives, right? This is creative. And therefore has given all things into the Son's hand, right? Which is the idiom hand, right? We could, we could think of the, maybe the, uh, in New York City, that the depiction of Atlas holding the globe, right? The, the Greek god Atlas holding the whole globe up above his shoulders and in his hands. But this is the idiom that God has the whole universe in his hands. Everything is under his control and his power at all times. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, all things, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. Why do we know this? Why does he do this? Because the Father loves the Son. In Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Now that's pretty comprehensive. Everything. At all times. Now we know that this authority wasn't given at a moment in time, but it's always existed. In John 1, 3, All things were made through him. The word, Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So at the very foundation of all things, God so loved the Son that he gave all things an authority, and that this has always been. This is eternal. And then the word that I, I learned this week, and I'll try to pronounce it correctly, right? Jesus is the plenipotentiary, plenipotentiary of the Father. Which means it's like an ambassador, right? But he has independent. And he gets to act independently and doesn't have to consult. He just gets to make actions and decisions and choices that have the same authority as the Father. And why can he do that? Because the Father and the Son are one. You and I are not plenipotentiaries of God, we are ambassadors. But we are given a specific message and a specific action to do. We don't get to independently. Hmm, what do we get to do to represent the Father? He tells us exactly what to do. But because the Father and the Son are one, there is no difference. And then you begin to understand when, he, when Jesus gives all these uh, parables about the Father sending the Son or the King sending. This is what he's talking about, a plenipotentiary, right? That you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the Father. You're rejecting God. He is the perfect spokesman. The Father sends the Son. The Son eternally obeys the Father. D.A. Carson in his commentary says this, the unfolding of redemptive history, or we could just say history, 
history because all history is, redempt, is redemption, redemptive history. The unfolding of redemptive history finds its source in the loving relationship of the Godhead. Everything that happens and everything that is unfolding is unfolding in this foundational truth that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Let's go back to John 3.16. The Father loves the world, so he gave the Son. Right? In John 3.35, the Father so loved the Son, what did he give? The world, or all things. There is, there is the foundation of how all history works, right? The Father so loved us, he gave us his Son. And here's the incredible thing. The Father has eternally loved you. Eternally loved you before you existed. Because you and I exist in a point in time. He has always loved you, right? The, the twinkle in his eye, as we would say in this world, right? But then the Father so loves the Son, he gives us, he gives the whole world, all creation to him under his authority, under his th- thing. He, another way scripture talks about it, he gives his children to the Son as a bride. We are the inheritance Those those that the Father loves, those that the Father causes, are the inheritance to his Son. Likewise, then, you and I are all inheritance to each other. That's why we gather together, right? I I get to um, bathe when I'm with you in all all my riches that God gives me is that you and me together, Right? The Father, Son's mutual love is the foundation of all things, right? So it's God is true. The Father sent the Son. God, the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. Therefore, the Father has given all things into his hands. And the fifth foundational truth, whoever trusts God, whoever trusts his love, whoever trusts this truth has eternal love. Life. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Now in that passage, there's two, seems like opposing thoughts. Right? One was belief and one was obedience. Right? Belief, if you believe in God, you have eternal life. If you do not obey, you don't have eternal life. Well, what is it? What, what is it? Do I have to? Uh, uh, do I have to then obey? Is, is it at my outward actions? But here's what Scripture talks about. Romans talks about obedience of faith. This is a common scriptural thing. Romans talks about the obedience of faith in chapter one and chapter sixteen. And so the obedience to faith, right? There's a certain when we talked about belief and faith in Scripture. We talked about it had three aspects of it. There's there's adherence to propositional truth that I agree with, that these are the statements that you agree with, just like these foundations or these fundamentals or these, these facts to uphold. 
And then there's understanding, there's, there's trust and faith and belief. There's, there's a trusting relationship. And then there's acts of faithfulness. How do, you, how do you live out that faith? How do you walk in truth? So obeying and what Scripture is talking about in the Gospels and in the New Testament, obeying the truth, obeying the truth is, is certainly not rejecting these five foundational truths, but that's not what it's necessarily talking about. Obeying the truth is, or obeying is about do you trust? That's the obedience of faith. Faith has outward actions. Trust has outward actions. It's not mere enough to say, I trust in something, and then every action of it says, I do not trust. The definition of faith is that there is outward actions to that. It shows that I trust. This is the fundamental, the gospel question. The gospel question, the question that New Testament begs you to answer, that is begging you to, telling you to understand, it's, it's not your works of righteousness. It's not your works of trying to purify yourself or being holy or set apart yourself or your acts of, uh, am I being good enough? Are I being truthful enough? Because the reality is none of those things will ever match up to how the difference between you and God. And God knows that. And so he's the one that sets out to f- fix this chasm, this gap between him. And so the fundamental gospel question is God saying is, do you trust me? Do you trust that I am true? That I speak the truth? Do you trust that I love my son and the son loves me and that I've sent my son and I've given all things into his hands? Do you sense that I have trusted him to solve your problem? To, to make you holy and to bring you back into right relationship? Do you trust that God is the truthful actor in this world? And that the fundamental act of all redemptive history, of all of history, is that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Do you trust? Do you trust that the Father has put all things in Jesus' hands? Do you put your life, do you put all things in your life in Jesus' hands? Because the Father does. The Father trusts the Son. Certainly you and I can trust the Son. And did you hear it at the very, at the very end? This is something that most people miss in the gospel. Right? At the very end it says, right, uh, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't trust if you don't have that obedience of faith. Here's the thing that we miss. God doesn't save you from death. He doesn't save you from sin. I mean, in part. But those are just the consequences. He saves you from himself. Now that may seem like, what does he make sense? How could God of love save you from himself? But God is a God of justice as well. Always. He's always just. He got a grace as well. But he, there, there is no outside source that is punishing you. The wrath that you deserve is from God because all things, all the time, are in his control. 
And when you sin and when you've turned your back and when you don't put things in his control, who have you hurt? Who have you harmed? Who have you not looked upon? God. And so whose wrath should it be? It's not necessarily, Satan doesn't care. He's cheering you on. That's not his wrath. It's not someone else's. It's God and his wrath, which is all-consuming. And what he does is when you trust, he's like, I trust that you'll, he saves you from his wrath. This is amazing. And in the midst of it, it says, if you don't trust, that wrath is not given to you. It's already there. The condition in which all people reside in this world is that the wrath of God remains on us. It's this is weight, and which is interesting thing is that the word for glory means weight. But here it is. This it seems like this oppressive wrath that weighs upon all of us, which is burdensome, which none of us can carry. Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death. Who gives us death? God does. Who earns the death? You and I do in every day of our lives. But in the midst of that, there's this, this incredible glory, which is God's glory, God's magnificence, which all things are created through his words, which means he's greater than all things, and we can't even comprehend this limitless God, this weight of glory. But then it says this weight of his wrath is upon us. But here's the amazing thing, that this weight of this glory that is upon us, what does Jesus say in Matthew 11? My burden is light. For us, when the weight of glory is upon us, when we trust him, it's nothing. It's a relief. It is freedom. But the weight of his wrath is unbearable. And you and I cannot stand. While there are important and significant theological declarations throughout Scripture, many of them, many of them, including the authority of God's Word, we often get bogged down and we often get confused on less important or the minutiae of our denominational differences, sometimes which are really important. I'm not dismissing that. But here the Gospel of John makes very clear to, to, to Jewish people, which would have had a very significant theological framework compared to the rest of the world. And that Jesus is cutting through, and the Gospel of John is cutting through these significant theological frames. Hey, hey, these are really foundational things that you ought to know because somewhere along the line you forgot the most important things. He makes the gospel quite clear and breaks it down for us. Yes, there are foundational truths. Yes, there are fundamentals. There are presuppositions that we ought to hold and we ought to hold tightly. But in the confusion, and particularly in this world, in the diffusion of truth in this world, set your heart and mind on these foundational truths. Day in and day out. Struggling with your circumstances and your moments, Whatever they may be, hold on to these five foundational truths. Set your life on them. John 3.33 Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. Sets his seal to that God is true. The Father sent 
His Son. The Father loves the Son. And because the Father loves the Son, He gave Him all things under His authority. And whoever trusts, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. And that weight, that wrath is removed. Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, please forgive us as we confuse your gospel at times. As we confuse others with our opinions and our thoughts and our, uh, our priorities, Lord. And let us help us to, to hold on to your word and to your truth and hold on to you. Let us cut through uh, to the most important thing, that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And that all our existence is, is held on to that. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to be people that uh, have the Spirit and go forth from this place with the Spirit to proclaim your message in which you've given us. That you are the truth that you have life, to love you. Help us to go from this place as those messengers, as the purveyors of hope, as gospel proclaimers, and help us to set our hearts and minds on these foundations. We praise your name. And all God's people said, amen.